Okay, let's start. Welcome to the Hub Politics Lab, uh, our third year running. And uh, as you can see here, our uh, hybrid uh, room, our offline room is slowly gathering uh, more and more people here. And I can see online, we also have 21 and counting uh, uh, participants. Uh, so it's really good to see uh, so many people uh, um, uh, joining in today. Uh, we have a really uh, exciting talk. Henk van der Kolk is our guest today from the University of Twente and uh, presenting uh, uh, work with uh, Matthijs Rodin, Armin Akverdian and André Sasloff. And uh, as part of our tradition, I'm receiving messages from Matthijs that he can't enter, I think. <laughs> that's, always, that's always happening. <laughs> okay, I'll try to fix that. Um, Okay, uh, so uh, uh, Hank will talk about the feelings of political yeah. discontent. Discontent. Hank is an associate professor at the University of Twente. Uh, uh, I'm not sure which department anymore because it used to be political science and public administration, but today. Long time ago. Yeah. Long time ago. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Henk, yeah, for me, you're really one of those uh, infamous uh, people in the Netherlands who collect all these huge amounts of data that we sometimes uh, use. And so we're, we're very grateful uh, for that. And, uh, and I think this will also be part of one of those uh, big uh, public data collections that you often work on. And so I'm really excited uh, about this topic. And for those people who have joined us for the first time uh, today, uh, uh, Henk will talk for about 20 minutes. Then you have your opportunity to ask questions both here the room you're also allowed to ask a question and um uh, and if you're online you can type your question into the q a box and uh bert bucker who's co-hosting with me today will moderate that uh, uh, uh conversation so without further ado i'll uh, yield the virtual space to you hank thank you um indeed uh i'm very glad that i'm able to talk to some political scientists again because I'm working currently in a, a department of data science. And although data science is a thrilling topic, uh, it's not political science. Uh, so I'm very happy that you invited me here. And I hope that my talk is indeed inspiring and will lead to some uh, discussion until four o'clock. I will talk about feelings or attitudes of political discontent. And for those who didn't hear, uh, my name is Henk van der Kolk. And I have a remote control, but it doesn't work. So every now and then I have to tap here to uh, move the slides. Okay, um, you probably heard not only in academia, uh, academia, but also in the news about trust, about discontent. And uh, the general feeling is that this trend is going, well, you could say down or up, depending on how you code, of course, your variables. Um, and that is about attitudes towards politics in general. So not attitudes towards a specific politician or not even at a higher level attitudes towards democracy, but it's more about the functioning of actual politics. And that trust, that satisfaction is often said to decline. Now, I'm not going to discuss trends. I want to discuss the concept. What do we mean with that? Um, now, for those that are familiar with the literature, there are a lot of similar variables all covering the idea of political discontent. Just to name a few, political alienation, which you hardly see in modern literature, internal and mainly external efficacy, political cynicism, stealth democracy, not maybe not well known, but also an indication of political discontent, satisfaction with democracy, which may be seen as something more general, not about actual politicians, but about the structures as well, 
And finally, political trust combined with rule of law trust. Um, the difference is that trust can be about political parties, about politicians, but also, of course, about judges and others. And these two are not related, at least not strongly. So therefore, I mentioned them separately. But all these elements cover ideas of political discontent or political satisfaction, to mention the opposite. And I want to discuss the differences between these concepts. More recently, there was a new kid on the block, which is the word populism. And that's how this project started. Populism can also be seen as an attitude. The attitude that is a contrast between the people and the elite, that the elite is bad, and that the people generally agree and are reasonable, which is called the homogeneity uh, aspect of uh, populism. And therefore, because people think this is the case, uh, they support referenda. And of course, populism as an attitude is often used to explain voting for populist parties. Now, there are not, there's not just one conceptualization of populism. There are several conceptualizations of populism. Just to mention the three most famous ones, the one is from Ackermann et al. And Andre is part of that team that argues that populism is actually one dimension. So one individual trait uh, describing all kinds of individuals. Others, however, have argued that we're talking about related dimensions, uh, which uh, goes partly back to the definition of populism as both anti-elitism and the idea that sovereignty is important and the idea that the people form a homogeneous group. Now, there are two versions of these, say, dimensional uh, conceptualizations of populism, one by Schultz and one by Da Silva. Now, all these different conceptualizations, of course, problem, uh, pose a problem and a challenge for political scientists. Because if we introduce new concepts, like populism, for example, that reduces the idea of knowledge accumulation. Everything that we have studied in the past decades about alienation, say, is no longer used when we start using the word populism. And the same is true for words like trust as compared to efficacy. If you look at the book, the, the famous handbook by now, by Tom van der Meer, and I forgot the first author, I have to admit, um, uh, they focus <laughs> on trust. But if you look in the index, whether they discuss efficacy, there are only five or six references to that concept. While if you look back to uh, literature from the 80s, it's mainly about efficacy and not about trust. So we also have uh, um, uh, uh, an emergence of what I call parallel literatures. There is a handbook, you could say, about political efficacy and another handbook covering more or less the same topics, but then it's called trust. And these are not uh, cross-fertilizing a lot. I mean, of course, there are some connections but they're uh, often independently uh, developing uh, independently. And I'm afraid that the same will happen with populism. Now, the question that I had is then, are these differences, are there differences in kinds of political discontents, including populism? And if so, what are these differences and what consequences do they have? Now, in this talk, I will focus mainly on the differences and not so much on the consequences and why is explained later in this short lecture. So that's my research question. And the research question will be answered in the paper, Confusing Discontent, are populism, political distrust, trust, efficacy, and cynicism really so much different? And it will be written by three of the four people that initiated the project. Now, what I will argue, so I'll tell you the conclusion in the start of my talk, is that the distinctions can be made between some dimensions of discontent, 
but these uh, discontent dimensions are very, very strongly related. And, that re and it thus remains to be seen whether we should stick to using different dimensions of discontent, although they are slightly different. And secondly, I will argue that prob uh, populism is probably not that different from political discontent. It is merged with some other elements, but once you take that seriously, you could even argue that that merger is only uh, happening to a limited extent, similar to the uh, Schultz uh, uh, operationalization and conceptualization of populism. Now, the structure of this talk is pretty simple. I already introduced the topic and introduced the main research question. I will now move to what we know about differences between these concepts and also why the knowledge that we seem to have may be of limited relevance, and that is the background of the whole project. How do we properly test the idea of difference between different conceptualizations of discontent? So I'll focus a lot on the design and the data analysis that Matthias and I currently are doing. And finally, I will show you some outcomes of the analysis, and that will be a bit more nuanced than the summary that I gave in the beginning, but that's basically what I tried to do. Okay, what do we know, and why may most of this knowledge be of limited relevance? Now, first, a few things that I think are really relevant. If you look at a lot of the operationalizations of the measures, like satisfaction and democracy with democracy, but also political cynicism, if you take a step back and you think like a methodologist, like people in my group are doing, these measures are really, really poor. Satisfaction with democracy is often only one item, so you cannot test the, uh, um, uh, the reliability, but also political cynicism is most often measured with only two or three items. Also not really allowing testing the reliability of the operationalization. Secondly, stealth democracy, not internally consistent, cannot be scaled in any way. So, okay, I will ignore that in the remainder of my talk. The internal consistency of various of these composite measures is not always extensively studied. A lot of people report an alpha, but they do not really carefully analyze whether it is really a scale. And the two populism models have been tested, and I have to admit that the the, the, the groundwork uh, of all three of the operationalizations is really extensive, not only in the published literature, but also in the documents underlying that. But still, I think that that needs to be tested more. And especially because there are three different conceptualization uh, uh, existing alongside each other. And finally, some studies, here it is, yeah, some studies indicate that the dimensions really differ. So that's very important outcome, especially in the populism literature, you see we are really doing something relevant because this is different from other indications of political discontent. Now that's the point that I strongly doubt. And why do I doubt that? Now Siri is going to help me. Sorry, Siri, shut up. Um, most of the tests showing that we are really talking about different things is based on secondary data, of course. I mean, we collected a lot of these data and then we try to test whether the dimensions are really different. However, the items in a lot of our surveys are included as blocks of items. Moreover, these blocks have different scales and different introductions. So it's not strange that the outcome of the analysis then shows that we are dealing with different uh, uh, conceptualizations, different concepts. And secondly, if you have a test with primary data, and some have that, then they are not using random samples. 
they're using very sp uh, specialized publics and uh, voluntary participants, etc. So also that test is not really convincing. And that is the background of studying more carefully whether the dimensions of discontent are really different. Now, what is the design of our study? So the study all four of us uh, participated in. We first identified a lot of items. And in the end, we came up with 53 political discontent items used in the Dutch parliamentary election study and several other studies. We also reversed a few in order to get the 53 uh, because most of these items are negatively formulated and we wanted to have a balanced set of items. So for example, the satisfaction with democracy and the dissatisfaction with democracy were both included in this set. There is an operational overlap between the conceptualizations and operationalizations of the various dimensions. So for example, what people call compromise in politics is really just selling out one's principles, is both used in operationalizations of populism and in the operationalization of stealth uh, democracy. Moreover, the statement politicians talk too much and take too little action is both part is part of two different uh, operationalizations of populism. So the 53 items cover a large range of different conceptualizations, but items are often used in different for, uh, for measuring different concepts. Now, we needed an incomplete design to test the whole idea. Why is that? There are just too many items for a single questionnaire. You can't ask, at least we think, you can't ask a random sample of individuals, 53 of these statements um, without challenging them too much and without leading to random error somewhere halfway the questionnaire. So we decided to uh, reduce the number of items we could ask to a respondent. Also, we wanted to include a few other items because we also want to see some uh, um, uh, determinants of discontent and maybe some consequences of discontent. So what was the solution? An incomplete design. Now that poses a lot of challenges and that's one of the reasons why this project takes so long. But let me explain the idea of incomplete design first and how you can solve the challenges related to an incomplete design. The idea is as follows. Suppose you have a concept, so here are four concepts. You uh, identify a few anchor items that you ask to all groups in your survey. In addition, you make for, for example, for group one, you add a few items for concept one and a few items of concept two. And you do the same for a second group and a third group. This allows us, this allows us to have a relatively short questionnaire, 32 items, uh, for each of the groups, but you have an incomplete design, meaning not all questions, not all items are posed to all individuals. What you can do is, of course, uh, test the full scale, so the internal, uh, the internal consistency of a scale, using only those uh, from group one. And you can, if you do that, you can compare uh, concept one and two in the conceptualizations, but only within group one. So you can do a lot, but you can't do everything. So for example, one of the things Matthijs always was suggesting, just plug it into one big thing and do an exploratory factor analysis to see whether, uh, whether there is a specific underlying dimensionality. But you can't do that because not all items were asked to all individuals. This can be solved by use, sorry, I collect, we collected the data with the list panel, so four, over 4,000 respondents, and we created about four groups. So all four groups now have 32 items, 
and these 32 items were all randomly uh, uh, given to uh, individuals. So there were not four questionnaires, there were four sets of questions that were then given to individuals in a random order. And of course, we excluded a few orders, for example, satisfaction and dissatisfaction with democracy were never uh, in the same uh, block. Uh, the same was true for some other combinations, but the rest was randomly assigned to individuals. Okay. Now, since we have an incomplete design, we can solve that in principle with item response theory. We can locate items uh, uh, on scales, and then we do not need all the answers. So incomplete designs can be nicely handled with IRT analysis. However, uh, and that allows us to impute the latent trait. So for example, then we can simply measure uh, political efficacy, political trust, or whatever. You don't necessarily, although you can, uh, uh, we don't uh, impute the, uh, uh, the scores for specific items, but you can measure the general latent trait that you try to measure. However, this requires an analysis of dimensionality first. So that's what we're doing in the paper. We try to find out what the dimensions are and how they relate to each other. And that's what I will uh, discuss the conclusions of. Okay, so what we did is a confirmatory factor analysis in uh, R in Lavan, and um, uh, we're reporting uh, the various outcome measures thereof. Now, I'm currently struggling with which criteria I have to use for that. So if someone is really well versed in confirmatory factor analysis, uh, help me uh, and help uh, Matthijs tell us, uh, we can improve the paper in that uh, respect. I currently focus on global fit measures only, but I have the feeling that more should be done. Okay, what are the outcomes of this analysis? Well, first of all, the one item operationalization of dissatisfaction with democracy is completely unstable. If we ask, uh, are you satisfied with democracy on a five point scale? And are you dissatisfied with uh, uh, democracy? They are hardly related. So 0.5 is the correlation between these items, meaning that if we stick to using the single item operationalization of dissatisfaction with democracy, we have an unreliable um, uh, indication. Again, stealth democracy, not a scale, ignore that. The Da Silva operationalization of populism, the three dimensions that they presented in their uh, article, is not a model. It's not confirmed in conf uh, confirmatory factor, factor analysis. It does not summarize the data neatly. Trust in political institutions is a good scale. So not with rule of law items and not with political parties. So the very specific one, do you trust political parties? But all the other ones form a nice scale uh, uh, to measure trust. Also, the populism Ackermann is a pretty good scale. It measures populism, uh, uh, at least from a statistical point of view, quite nicely. The populism Schultz model with three models is also largely confirmed by the data. The correlations between the three dimensions are rather strong, not extremely big, but strong. And mainly, I focus mainly on the anti-elite idea because these are some items that are also included in the discontent uh, uh, questionnaire, and sovereignty, the idea that the people should decide. The correlation between these two is 0.7, uh, but there are definitely different uh, dimensions of, in this case, populism. The homogeneity scale, though, in the Schultz model is really, really poor. Uh, the scale as such is not summarizing the data nicely. Okay, the big question, of course, so I now focused on the independent scales that we introduced. 
are the scales really different? Are they measuring something which is different? Because of the incomplete design, I can only uh, uh, do partial comparisons. I cannot have one single big model uh, testing all the relationships, but at this stage, I don't think that is necessary. Now, the first outcome, which is really, really strong, is that external political efficacy and political cynicism are actually exactly the same thing. They are nicely summarized, summarized by one single trait and together form actually a very good scale. Now, you might, argue, might argue, is this relevant? Well, still in the Dutch parliamentary election studies, we have uh, uh, external political efficacy measured with three items, and political cynicism with two items, and one is, I think, with a four-point scale and the other with a two-point scale. It really does not make sense to keep on doing that. So I think that's an important outcome. Trust in political institutions is different from political efficacy. So I expected, when I did the analysis, that they were actually the same, but they're not. On the other hand, the correlation between these two uh, traits is 0.83. And then you can go back, do we really need two concepts that are basically measuring the same thing, although they are indeed a bit different? The populism, Ackermann, and external efficacy are strongly related. They can be seen as one single scale, especially if we tweak it a bit. I'm not going into the tweaking. But it means that populism, at least as operationalized by Ackermann et al, uh, and external efficacy seem to measure more or less the same thing. But that is strange because also the model by Schultz seems to be confirmed by our data. And I hope you still remember, these were three different dimensions. Now, what's the thing here? And, and I have to tell you, I, I didn't go into details, but Schultz and Ackermann more or less have the same set of items, some of the items are the same. So how come that we can both argue that Ackermann populism is one scale and also strongly uh, coinciding with external efficacy, while at the same time, we argue that the Schultz model with three dimensions is also a good summary of the data. And that's the big, or at least one of the puzzles that we tried to solve. If you look very carefully, you can see that it's act, there are actually only two sovereignty items, the idea that the public should decide in the Ackermann scale. And if you have only two of these items, they quickly go to the rest. So they merge with the remainder, which is mainly anti-elitism. But in the Schulz operationalization, there are more sovereignty items. So then they separate, they, they, they separate from the uh, uh, discontent external efficacy uh, element. Okay, so what's the overall conclusion? There is a measurable trait, political discontent, trust. There are some subtle differences, dif meaning that trust is indeed a bit different from external efficacy. But we have to discuss in the future whether we still want to stick to different operationalizations of probably more or less largely the same thing. Um, this is about populism. The populism trait is what I think mainly discontent associated with something else. And I think that that summarizes more nicely what you find in the data. It is the feeling that the old feeling, the feeling that we studied over decades under different names, the feeling that the elite is a, a, a bad group of people, but it's associated with more recently with the idea, Siri, shut up. I didn't say Siri. 
uh, it's more or less recently associated with the idea that this problem can be solved by more popular sovereignty. And that may be an outcome, a consequence of political parties stressing that idea. I think that that what has changed in the past is that that feeling of discontent that exists for over 40, 50 years and has been studied for uh, that period is now politicized and associated with the idea that there is a solution for that problem and that is done by political parties. So therefore, you nowadays see that that old idea of political discontent became associated, which it wasn't, nowadays is associated with the idea that the uh, sovereign people, uh, uh, more people sovereignty will solve that very problem. Okay, that was 20 minutes, I think. I like to stick within my time frame, And that was my talk. I hope it leads to discussion. Thank you, Hank. This was uh, great. Um, so uh, those of you who are new uh, here today, um, you can uh, type a question to Hank in the uh, Q&A box, and then uh, I will uh, read it out, and, um, and Hank can, um, can respond. Um, the, uh, and Matthijs also joined. Uh, he is there for the difficult methodological questions, uh, he informed us. And uh, uh, the people in the room with Gijs uh, obviously don't have to type their questions, but can communicate via Gijs that they want to ask a question. So uh, we're going to try a little bit how that works with the sound, uh, uh, because that is a bit of a, a, a challenge that we have, right, or that we're learning in this hybrid environment. So uh, while people might be thinking about their questions, uh, I will take the opportunity to uh, to to ask the first question, uh, Hank, and I I want to you know I want to thank you and compliment you for uh, for for doing this because uh, you know I guess we're also always telling our students that measurement is important, but uh, on the other hand we're also always all too eager to uh, to explain a phenomena and uh, and and not focus too much on measurement. So. Uh, um, these particular concepts have uh, have always uh, sparked some interest of, among myself, so I'm happy that you're critically evaluating it. And so, the question I have for you is: so, so right now you're trying to to understand to what extent there is um, a uh, a one latent concept or multiple latent concepts. And I think that's a, that's that you could say: well, you know, are these things basically the same thing? We say convergent validity. But I was wondering: is the logical next step? of this project not to look at the predictive validity of these concepts and the list panel would um, really be suitable for that because you have basically everything in there. So my exactly. question is, what would you then expect when it comes to the predictive validity? It's just like, well, basically all these things predict the same. Is, is, so what are your expectations in terms of the predictive validity here? Well, uh, uh, basically you're discussing the last section of the paper. Uh, which I skipped, um, uh, but you're right. Uh, indeed, uh, the proof of the uh, pudding is in the eating. Uh, to what extent do the various conceptualizations explain things? Now, for the paper, we decided to focus on populist voting. And uh, uh, it, uh, we basically argue that you can uh, uh, explain populist voting as good with the ordinary uh, political efficacy scale, in which form, whatever, or the populism scale. So both can be used for more or less the same thing. And therefore, you do not necessarily need the populism. What we are still trying to find out is whether that sovereignty aspect, which is slightly independent from the anti-elitism aspect, uh, has an additional effect on uh, uh, populist voting. So that's the aim of the paper. 
Yeah, I don't have, by the way, the results yet of that. So we're still struggling with how to do this uh, uh, without um, uh, first constructing a scale and then doing a regression analysis. We want to do it all in one uh, uh, with uh, a SEM uh, model. And, and well, that is something of a struggle, right? Yes. Okay. Okay, let's, uh, let's try this hybrid thing. Uh, I've been told that Tom has a question as well. So Tom, uh, you, the, the microphone has to be turned on. Yes. Hi, thanks. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Hi, okay. Hi, how are you? Uh, first of all, Luce Poin. I, I really like uh, what you're presenting here. I think one of the main uh, um, responses that you'll get from reviewers will be that these, all these different concepts, they have different theoretical backgrounds and that a lot of the value of these different concepts will be in that. So political trust is based on the idea of vulnerability, populism, not so much. So that will be something that I think you should keep in mind, but we're talking about measures here um, and, and measurement models. I, uh, one that's already been covered, one of has been covered by Bert, but um, trust as you, in your, as you model it now in, in, in factor analysis uh, is one way to model the scale of trust. But quite a few recent studies suggest that trust is hierarchical, at least this trust battery is an hierarchical skill, um, where trust in the justice system is almost a precursor to trust government and parliament, and that's a precursor to be able to trust parties. Um, you didn't delve into that, but that might be a different explanation why some of the items drop out of the analysis in your yeah. case. Um, second question that I have is, you mentioned the, the single scale of efficacy and cynicism. Now, we were both involved in the Dutch parliamentary election survey a few years ago, and we had to keep these items in because of the old people who didn't want to change anything to the survey. Um, but we also know that cynicism in the Dutch parliamentary election survey is very weakly related to the concept of cynicism itself. It's, it, it isn't a measure of cynicism. To quite a few people, it's a measure of realism. Uh, when I worked with Paul Decker, who did some quantitative interviews, and the people that we interviewed that scored high on this value weren't cynical, they were realist. Sure, people <laughs> do not care about people like me. My voice isn't being heard. It matters who you know to get into public stuff like that. Um, so the problem might not so much be in terms of uh, the, the concept, but in terms of very weak measures that you described. How will you pull that apart? Yeah, thank you for the questions. Matthijs, write down the hierarchical uh, uh, thing. I didn't think about that. That may be a solution indeed for the finding of, of three different factors when it comes to trust. So I'm not going into that very good point. The other two points are actually related. Um, uh, when you defend the cynicism items, and also when you point to uh, uh, different uh, uh, theoretical backgrounds of operationalizations, I think you're making the same argument, which is that theory and interpretation steers us in a specific direction in interpreting the items. And the more I analyze the data, the more I come to disagree with that basic idea. You see that also in the discussion of populism. Uh, you see a lot of theoretical argumentation uh, uh, discussing why we should measure or include things in a very specific way. Um, you read sentences like, this is not populism. Okay, so very, very, uh, uh, how do you say that? Realistic way of looking at, no, that's not the word. Um, you, uh, you, you, you define a concept by looking at the theoretical background and then you argue it has to be different. I 
I don't think that that is the way we should proceed. I mean, what we see in the data is that statements about poli uh, uh, politicians don't care about my opinion, they're only interested in my vote, which you can at least, you can interpret that as a realist statement, but it's strongly associated with these are buggers, these are bad people. So empirically, they are associated. So I care less about the fact that the first one is realistic because we are political scientists and we know it's true. Um, uh, I care more about, is it empirically measuring something that we think is important? I hope that is a counter argument. Thanks, Hank. Uh, we're going I, to- Maybe Tom doesn't agree. Yeah, but let's uh, let's okay. uh, first uh, because uh, um, then we have some time for if there's there's more time then uh, we'll uh, we'll allow for uh, extensive deliberation uh, because there's also a question from uh, Emily Miltenberg uh, and uh, the I'll read it out you can actually follow it if you press on this Q and A. Well, oh, it's not in the chat. No, it's in the Q and A, which is next to the chat. Oh, here, oh, there's a different one. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the question is this. Um, Thank you so much for your clear presentation. If I understood it correctly, you also included some items in the survey on the causes and consequences of political discontent. At the SAP, Social and Cultural Plan Bureau, we are starting a project on this in relationship with societal unease or societal pessimism and the roots of this political and societal discontent. Can you say something more about your plans about studying the causes of discontent? I have to admit that we currently focused in the paper only on the consequences. Did we discuss mm, causes? Matthijs, did we? Well, not really for the papers, but what is interesting is that we actually included some of the uh, questions about societal pessimism in our survey. Yeah. Um, these were the filler questions, and those were some of the questions uh, that Evje has uh, uh, asked, I think, in her um, uh, in her research, and I think we we included like three of them or something. So we 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 could uh, study it, but we haven't done so yet. But it is uh, that one is in 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 this in, in in our survey, and we can of course look at many uh, different other uh, possible causes. But this was something that was just not on our agenda yet, no. right? But, but it, it, I, we already mentioned it's the list panel. So basically all possible explanations of discontent and possible consequences of discontent ha have been included at some point in the list panel. So we can do a lot. Um, and um, uh, since our study uh, covers well 4,000 individuals, most smaller studies can be are within our study. So uh, not all, but... Um, uh, most, most variables have been studied uh, uh, in the rest of the list panel. We even have, for example, um, uh, the possibility to, uh, to study the overtime stability of the populism scale, because the populism scale was also included two or three times already in the list panel, and it shows a huge stability over time. So that is, uh, yeah. So we can do it, but we didn't do it yet. Great, thanks. Uh, let's switch back to the uh, to Amsterdam, where Wouter van der Brug uh, has a question. Yes, um, thanks very much for the presentation, Hank. Um, it's really fascinating, and I um, really enjoyed listening to it. Um, I'm, you know, it makes me 
very curious because many of the results you described the results but you didn't really show them <laughs> so and that makes me very curious sometimes okay well what does this really mean for instance when you say um we have two scales and it turns out that they measure something different yep. but the correlation is 0.83 or something yep. um what exactly does that mean <laughs> Uh, I can, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can explain what we did. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we, we did a confirmatory factor analysis, uh, and then you can estimate the model. Uh, uh, is it one scale? And you can uh, estimate the model. Is it two scales, two related scales? And you can test whether one scale fits the data better than the other. You have a formal test for that. It's uh, an ANOVA uh, test. And, and what I presented here is just the outcome of that test showing that yes indeed the two-dimensional one in which the two dimensions are correlated uh, is better than a one-dimensional scale uh, uh, in which all the items form one uh, latent trait um, uh, so that is the outcome of the analysis um, but would in that case for instance a one-dimensional solution still fit the data good enough <laughs> Uh, to have an acceptable fit, um, according to the the standard um, uh, uh, cutoff points, say uh, what is it, the say of R of point ninety five of yeah ninety five etc. No, uh, then it would not be a good fit. Uh, uh, but that's one of the things that I learned about a confirmatory factor analysis. It very much depends on where you look at, because sometimes you see indeed that both interpretations seem to be correct, but still one is significantly better than the other. And then, yeah. okay, what, what do you choose? But you're right, in this case though, uh, when it comes to cynicism and the other one, uh, it's, it's really much better to have one single scale um, uh, with the trust and uh, efficacy uh, difference. It really did not fit to have one single scale and, okay. uh, 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 and also two scales was significantly better than the other and was a good model of the data yeah but i would i mean my argument would be that confirmatory factor analysis is really not the model to use here uh, because it's so sensitive to different distributions of the uh, of the different variables that you use that they start loading on different scales and you get a much better fit when they're loading on different scales. So for instance, the um, argument that um, Tom just made on the hierarchy in the trust items, an item response theory based model would pick that up. Um, whereas in a factor analysis, uh, they would start loading on, on different latent dimensions if the distribution is really different. Um, so, and, um, yeah, I, I can also show you. No, you I understand some... the point. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is that when we started writing the paper, we wrote an IRT paper. Uh, so I, we did the IRT analysis. But then I found out that you can only do that in an accessible way if you first discuss the dimensionality. Um, because IRT analysis assumes that, you're, th that you know the dimensionality. And then it tests whether all of the items 
uh, measure that latent trait. Yeah, true. Okay, so we can back so to if the... that's rejected or some items are thrown out, then obviously they don't fit that one dimensional structure. I agree. So what would you recommend? Because Matthijs and I have been struggling with the paper for quite some time. The previous <laughs> version has said is was largely based on IRT analysis. Uh, and then we, or at least, yeah, all the analysis, we arrived at a conclusion, we better do a confirmatory factor analysis first, and then redo part of the analysis using IRT analysis. But I am now suggesting to abandon that idea and to go back to IRT analysis first. Well, if, I mean, if, um, if, we'll do it both. if, if confirmatory factor analysis shows our, um, sort of supports the idea that's a, that it, there's a unidimensional structure, then I would trust that. But once it says, well, you need, or you get a much better fit if you have two dimensions, then I don't know whether that is because the two latent dimensions are conceptually different or whether the distribution of the items that are intended to measure the two latent dimensions are, are different. And uh, that's, that's a problem uh, in, in exploratory factor analysis more than in confirmatory, but also in confirmatory factor analysis, it's a big problem. Okay. But I think, sorry. Yeah. I, I get the point. Uh, can we solve this by um, uh, uh, writing the paper like we did it now, like I presented it now, but then ending with, okay, we argue that CFA uh, gave us uh, different dimensions. However, and then we can uh, give your argument saying that this still doesn't mean that this is the simplest interpretation of the data. We can maybe find a simpler interpretation using IoT analysis where they're actually to what, what it, that it is actually one dimension. But is, is that what basically the um, IRT models show that it is one dimension or not? Or are not, many not all, items thrown out? Not, not all of them, but okay. at least we can, uh, um, in, in the paper, we can end with saying, okay, we will study that in the next paper. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can't exclude the possibility that it is still one dimension. But the point is, of course, the, the starting point is that. Uh, we started with a lot of different scales. Mm -hmm. And the main conclusion is, of course, well, maybe we should not stress the difference between all these different concepts too much because basically they are either strongly related or form a single scale. And what you are now trying to argue is that it is even worse. It's even less different than we already showed. I'm not sure because I no, 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 but it can be. It can, it can be. be. Yeah. Hank, I'm going to uh, intervene for a second uh, because uh, I, I at least know that Philip Mendoza, who is also in the room, still has a question uh, so that we make sure that we cover that before we uh, con can continue the exchange on, uh, on okay. IRT versus uh, CFA, uh, which is very interesting. So, Philip, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me well? I'm all the way in the back. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, thank you, Hank, for the really interesting presentation. I really like the data collection part of how these constructs might have like established themselves as independent constructs uh, just by mere uh, means of, of collecting them differently. But I actually have a question about uh, the generalizability or, or your thoughts on, on how these findings might translate to different contexts, different times because you've already mentioned how the populism um, attitude, you know, scale or so, 
might have aligned itself with this political efficacy one over time, which is a very interesting thought. And I was wondering whether this might also be the case with other dimensions that this sort of uh, convergence we, it might only be unique to the Netherlands now in time. And yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Um, now I have to go beyond, go beyond uh, the paper. I mean, the paper is one single survey, one moment in time, one context. Uh, so I can't test ideas about changes in the dimensionality. But you're right. Um, uh, while writing the paper, uh, more and more I came to think of to what extent do we actually think that, that there is a more or less latent trait called discontent? And um, is, the, is the dimensionality stable? Or, and is the position of an individual stable on that dimension? I mean, these, these are two different things. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, we first need to disentangle both ideas. I mean, people can become more discontent and less discontent over time, but they can also have uh, 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 combined different ideas about discontent in different ways over time. And these things are different indeed. So I can reflect on that, but the data do not allow me to really test these ideas. Um, am I now willing and able to say interesting things that you can reflect on? Maybe I can say something. Slightly related. Um, what is interesting, of course, is if, if indeed we conclude in the end that uh, populism is basically external efficacy plus, right? plus something which is sovereignty that is the, the new sauce over uh, the, the efficacy concept, that would be, it, then it would be very interesting because that could mean, if that's the case, it could mean that we can use efficacy variables to uh, use as a proxy for populism uh, to some extent. And it means that we can go further back in time and uh, uh, use efficacy as a proxy for, for uh, populist attitudes. And that would be, of course, I mean, it's still way too early to conclude that, but if, uh, uh, if this is the conclusion we draw, that might be a very interesting uh, future path to take, basically. Yeah, yeah good point. Matthijs, uh, before I return to a question from the audience. So my question is, for you, quick question for you. What does this now mean for the, the scholarship of populism? Because you can think about what it means for measuring populism, but what is it, so, so it's, are we right for the wrong reasons? Or are we studying a concept that are we just relabeling something at the individual level? So what are your reflections on this? I, I, I personally, oh, but I should no, go ahead. No, go ahead. For both. Go, ahead. Go, ahead. <laughs> go ahead. I go second. <laughs> I go for, okay. Then, then contradict me, please. Uh, so, okay, you say the opposite of what I say. I am more and more convinced that we should not aim for a new conceptualization called populism to measure something at an individual level. So I, I do not think that we should aim for a, a better operationalization, better set of items, etc. what Ackermann, Schulz and Azilfa tried to do. I think we should uh, go in the direction of measuring discontent in a good way and hopefully uh, in the same way or similar way, or at least connected to the way we studied that in the past decades. And then in addition to that, reflect on uh, um, uh, ideas that became associated with that discontent, that there are sovereignty solutions or so referenda and, and the people should have a say and politicians should listen to individuals that became attached to that. And I think that that is another way of looking at this topic. Uh, uh, so instead of looking for 
one dimension or a three-dimensional model which is really different see it as an extension of what is done in the trust literature and in the political efficacy literature and and uh, uh, extend that with the new ideas that came up in the context of populism i think that that would be my answer to your question yeah and i would add to that that um of course it's um it's about bundling anti-elitism or uh, external efficacy or cynicism or discontent however you call it with uh, sovereignty right so it's about how you combine the two and we have these findings in the netherlands which are really interesting but of course it might well be the case that before or later or in other countries yep. the combination of the two or the bundling of the two is different because for instance politicians uh, combine them in different ways or because uh, people think about these things differently i don't know but um, therefore i think it's also um, interesting what philip asked it's very important to uh, also later on test this in other countries because the fact that we talk about bundling means that it's really necessary to also focus on different contexts where this bundling can be done differently by parties by other types of elites for instance great thanks so that was not really contradicting but extending the idea extending yeah. Yeah. okay so we agree but i never contradict you so supporting co-offers that's great uh okay so the next question is from uh Schorsch overman who is somewhere in the room yes it's me thank you uh thanks for this this very interesting uh, uh work and uh for presenting it um i'm not really a political scientist so i might be less burdened by uh, by actual knowledge about this this topic <laughs> <laughs> but um in, in the vein of, of the discussion uh, that was just exchanged, I, I, I'm not really convinced uh, by measurements alone. Uh, like, I think correlation does not equal causation. I also think that um, like uh, loading on a single dimension does not equal uh, being the same thing. So I would be much more convinced if you could relate them uh, to other variables, uh, um, especially if it's it based on, on sound theory, so that uh, you might have certain scales that, that relates to another variable uh, or correlate with another variable, um, but maybe another configuration does not. Uh, in that case, that would argue maybe for a uh, more dimensional and also theoretically more dimensional uh, concept rather than a unique dimensional concept. So uh, long story short, I think that, that this um, measurement should also always go hand in hand with, uh, with theor theoretical conceptualization. I, I fully agree. Uh, a first step in every uh, confirmatory factor analysis to always first discuss the content of the items. In this case, however, I think that uh, trust, uh, efficacy, etc., have all been theorized quite extensively as a relationship between the respondent towards uh, a set of politicians. And it's done in slightly different ways, but all the items have been defended in that, in that way. So I'm not so much afraid that we are putting very different items on one single heap only because they load on the same factor. All these items have been defended at one point in time in history as, as indications of 
that general idea of we are unhappy with them. I think that that would be my answer to your question. It's not simply, I mean, the selection of items is based on what was used up until now in the literature. So they have been theoretically defended. Good. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Tom, you have a follow-up question, uh, maybe on your earlier question or... Yeah, well, no, I have quite a few follow-ups now, but... The, the well, in the that, in that, interest of time, keep it to I one. I know, but the argument that, that, that Hank just made, uh, you're right, I mean, it's, it's in trust, it's A trusts B, and that's where the discontent is, but it goes a lot further. I mean, uh, the, the discontent is directed to something to a, not just to an object, but to a situation, to an activity, etc. And that's why they might still differ quite a bit. That was my follow-up, but, but I, I think by focusing too much on discontent itself, you might lose all these sometimes quite relevant analysis. But I, what I want to follow up on is uh, um, the, the longitudinal idea. I think you can do more using uh, the, the list panel data, where the national, the Dutch political, uh, sorry, Dutch parliamentary election survey was included a few times. Uh, so you've got the trust battery, you've got the cynicism battery, the efficacy battery, your populism scales, so you can do a lot more. And I agree that over time the dimensionality tends to be quite stable, but these items, they do differ in terms of, of the positions that people take, at least at the aggregate, but also at the individual level, uh, where trust, for instance, is much more volatile, uh, political trust is, other elements such as cynicism and to a lesser extent efficacy are much less volatile. In, in fact, they tend to trend stable or in the direction of less discontent. And that is another reason why you should still try to distinguish between these different objects, because we need to understand, even though the dimensional structure might be too much of an overlap, why, they, why, the, why the positions that people take on those dimensional structures might differ with time. Okay, I, I, there are two comments. First, first about the theorizing. I really, and I, I said it before, I became convinced that, that we sometimes theorize too much uh, uh, because we expect that the very subtle distinctions we make uh, about relationships between actors and politicians are also made by the respondents. And I don't believe that. Uh, um, uh, if I talk to uh, the people in my uh, skating club about politics, they don't make these subtle distinctions. So they respond to questions like this in a much more general way. And although we can theoretically argue that they're different, they're, empirically they're not, because that's not how people look at politics. So that is, I really think we overestimate in that sense, but only in that sense, the relevance of theorizing. Uh, your second point is more a suggestion, which I very much agree on, that is, uh, uh, have a look at uh, the list panel um, and check whether uh, the stability, we, we checked it for populism, and I already said the correlation between the scale score in our study and the previous one was 0.9 or, or even more than that. So the scale score, not, the, not at the items, but the general, of, which is, I think, huge. We didn't do it for the other ones yet, but that's indeed a very good suggestion. So maybe we can write a paper about uh, individual level stability and then your um, uh, uh, your uh, hypothesis that some of the scales maybe more show more stability than others seem to test so thank you for the suggestion or maybe someone else can do it but yeah that's a very good idea 
what is interesting, I think, is that um, that we do find that the trust items uh, differ from efficacy and cynicism and populism to some extent. They do seem to, and we expected that, uh, that it would also be like uh, just a measure of discontent. We, th that was one of our um, expectations maybe in the beginning, but it turned out that it is something different to some extent, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's also, it's all, always uh, the question, when is it really something different? Because that is what we have been struggling with, but it is more different from the rest than the other uh, concepts are. And, and, this, and this may be because what uh, uh, Tom said is that one is more stable than the other, uh, then, then that, that may be reflected in having finding two different dimensions. I mean, not literally, of course, because you measure it only at one point in time, but if trust is indeed less stable than uh, efficacy, you could say trust is basically efficacy plus something more volatile, which makes it then in the end more volatile, but also slightly different from, from efficacy. So that could be a direction we can take in the if analysis. If you look at the measures, that makes sense because trust are the, these are, I'm a trust scholar, but these are the worst items imaginable. <laughs> they are completely empty. To what extent do you trust government? Yeah. You don't define anything yeah. you leave everything up to the to respond to interpret yeah so that's why this is likely interpretation yeah okay <laughs> but but, the, but that but oh, that is in line with uh, that's in line oh, with the interpretation that is the trust <laughs> items are more volatile because they're bad items they're worse okay. items there's still a quick question from Avia I think Avia if you can do it short and then also a short answer from Hank no, I can't, but I try. I'll try. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask, but you just answered it, is what the outcome was actually about how similar is trust to all the other um, uh, attitudes. And what the final um, uh, final conclusions in the presentation were about the populism scale. And then uh, you talked about you know consequences in terms of voting for populist parties. I, I think that is the less uh, exciting part of your study, actually, <laughs> because I think the trust items, just what Tom said, are very unclear and fake. And to show the level of similarity between those items and the more focused efficacy or populist items, and then the, yeah, the similarity, the shared variation, and what that does in terms of behavior, I think that is the most exciting part that I would be interested in. And another thing I would like to see more about is that you say that you find an, an item a survey with 50 questions on this topic too challenging, which I totally agree. And then you have 32 questions or something. So I was wondering, how did you decide on that? And did, do you control in any way about like how far in the survey the question comes or, you know, to, 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 yeah, to control for that? And okay, I'm really very short, of, uh, very yeah, short I'm really on the short last uh, yeah. issue first. Uh, the, the, the decision 32 was like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the way we solved it was having uh, small blocks uh, uh, um, intermitted with uh, uh, questions about other topics. So that's what Matthijs already mentioned. So that's how we, we broke up, I think, to four randomly cr uh, created blocks. So there's not a block in that sense. But say uh, first uh, eight questions, then some other questions, eight questions, other questions, eight questions. So that's how we build up the questionnaire. Why like that? That was, we don't know, but we think this is doable. So that's the second one. The first one, only a short uh, defense. This whole project started with me complaining about yet another concept, which is populism. So that's why populism is still there. 
and I'm happy uh, to see that it is uh, more uh, broadly relevant. So yeah, maybe we can we can think about that. Short answer. Okay, yes, thanks. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Hank, uh, for these great answers and the great presentation. Also, I want to thank your assistant, Matthijs. <laughs> did really well today. <laughs> and uh, 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 Matthijs already has the infamous uh, Hot Politics Lab coffee mug, but uh, Hank, uh, you, of course, uh, as presenter in our lab, will also receive one uh, in due time. Great. And I lost mine. So I you would lost like to yours. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to replace that again. That's really, that's really you. Okay, um, we have a very exciting schedule in the next uh, coming weeks that I want to invite everyone to. Next week, same time, same place, well, places here and online, uh, we have Hugo Mercier from uh, uh, Paris giving a talk that is titled, Not Born Yesterday, Why Humans Are Less Gullible Than We Think. Uh, so uh, um, again, I guess really a story about about very similar attitudes that, that that have been discussed today, but then from a evolutionary psychology perspective. Then October 15, we have Christopher Lucas with a talk, "More Than Words: How Politic Political Rhetoric Shapes Voters' Effect and Evaluation." And then we have uh, October 22, Graduate Friday, with two presentations by Isabella Rabasso and Leonard Schurman, and then the. And in the month, October 29, we have Alan Sanfi, a major name in neuroscience, who will give a presentation on political neuroscience. So I'm uh, very excited to have seen you all today. And for those of you who are here physically or online, but in the neighborhoods, uh, you're welcome to have a drink with us in a Crea Cafe at the expense of the European Union. <laughs> Hope to see you next week. <laughs> Bye.